Hey everyone, welcome to episode 72 of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Christopher Zook. He is the founder and chief investment officer of Kaz Investments, which oversees about $5 billion in assets under management. This was my first time meeting and talking to Christopher, and we did a nice deep dive into his more than 30 years in investing, and there are certainly a lot of lessons and principles that come up early in the conversation, especially around finding your why. I really enjoyed that part of the conversation. We also did a nice deep dive into the macro environment and why Christopher sees a recession coming, specifically a recession that will be a lot longer and deeper than many expect. We also got his concerns around stagflation, which historically has been the worst possible environment for stocks and bonds. We also got his take on where he sees opportunities to allocate capital and make investments during these more turbulent economic environments. Christopher is certainly someone who likes to be a buyer. He's someone who follows that Warren Buffett maxim of be greedy when others are fearful. And uh, he's someone who successfully shorted subprime during the housing crisis. So I really enjoyed having him on the show and getting his take on what's happening currently in, in the economy. We covered a lot of ground and um, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And just really quick, if you're new to the channel, thank you so much for joining me and following along here. Please be sure to hit that like button and that subscribe and the bell so you won't miss any future episodes. The show is completely free and your support will help me bring in some more amazing guests because we're all trying to piece together what's happening in the macro economy. And by the way, if you're listening to the show, please be sure to leave a rating and a review so more folks can find these episodes. Your support means so, so much. Thank you so much. I could not do it without you. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Christopher Zook. Christopher Zook, Chief Investment Officer of Kaz Investments. It is so great to welcome you on the pod. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you on and it's our first time even having an interview. And I was just reading a little bit about you and I saw that you have been in this business for over 30 years. Um, I know you started your firm uh, 22 years ago and I was kind of hoping, Christopher, we could start at the beginning. Um, what was it for you that made you want to get into investing, into markets? Uh, when did you first get your start or at least get your interest in this uh, profession? You know, it goes back to college. When I was a um, first couple of years of college, I was focused on golf. I played football, got hurt, had to give that up. And so I decided I was going to go into the golf business. And I took a course in financial planning that really just, I took to it like a duck to water. I really enjoyed the conversations around investments. And so I was able to design a custom degree plan for me that allowed me to take a lot of finance and a lot of, uh, of economics, as well as interestingly, psychology and speech communication. And I was able to blend that together. And ultimately, it was the investing that just had the passion. And part of that came because I was putting myself through school at the time. And so I was waiting tables in the evening. I was playing golf in the afternoon, did classes in the morning, but I also traded commodities to help pay for my education. And so that really kind of got me interested in the markets. And so because of that, going into the investment business was the logical choice when I graduated. That's fascinating. Okay. I want to hear a bit more trading commodities. Cause sometimes when I talk to folks and I hear they got their start, um, it's like they, they went and like read the stock tables and they bought a couple of shares of something trading commodities. Was that because you were in Texas? Was this like oil? Like walk me through like how you got into trading commodities. How were you doing it back then? It's interesting because it did come from being, you know, in Texas, not specifically Texas, but I went to school at Texas Tech University and they had a significant program in the agricultural business college talking about hedging. And so you learned a lot about commodities trading from a hedging perspective, mm -hmm. but they obviously talked about how you can do it for speculation. You can do it for, for trading profits as well. And I read, I was always a very, very avid reader. And so I read about a hundred different books between my junior year and my senior year about the investment world. And a number of those were books like Market Wizards by Jack Swager and you know some of the very famous books that are out there related to some of the traders that have done really well over the years. 
And that really piqued my interest even more. And I recognized that as a young person without much money at all, the best way to be able to create significant income for myself to help pay for my school was to trade commodities. And so did a lot of agricultural, a little bit of energy. Uh, but actually what I really enjoyed the most was the currency side because I found those trended the best. And so it was a little bit easier and I didn't have to be chained to the computer, if you will, uh, all day long, which obviously at that day and age was a little different than having it walking around with me in my pocket. Okay. So that's fascinating. The hedging side of things and also learning that in college, what a great way to like get an education. I, you're probably the first person I've talked to that I've heard that. Okay. So in those early years, um, do you have any like memorable trades that you made or whether it was like a victory or a mistake that you made? Um, anything that was kind of like a learning or teaching moment for you? There definitely were lots and lots of teaching moments. But one of the things that I did well from the beginning is I managed risk extremely carefully. Um, I didn't have this, you know, I know many people in our industry that had this enormous success and then you know, epic failure. And then they rebuilt from there. I'm not that exciting. Mine was much more methodical. And I certainly had mistakes that I made. A lot of it had to do with not understanding my own emotions of where I felt things should go. And I was a very technical trader, which also made it a little bit easier. So it wasn't like I thought I was smarter than everybody else. I just followed the trends and used the technical analysis to be able to make decisions at that time. And so as long as I stuck with the stop losses that I put in place, and as long as I you know, was disciplined about the sizing of the positions, I did well. Almost every time that I looked back and go, that was just really a bad decision. It was because of the fact that I overweighted a position because I had really high conviction in it. And ultimately, that usually, almost always, was a bad idea as opposed to being much more methodical about the trading aspects of what I was doing and being disciplined about making sure those losses were small and letting the winners run which is, you know, the, the trend following 101, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now, I take it you were in the um, investing business post-college before you started your firm. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about when did you want to go out on your own? What was that process like? That A little bit of that like, kind of entrepreneurial journey. I, I meet a lot of folks who have like these ambitions to like want to start a firm, but what was that for you? It's It's interesting because of the fact that I don't know if it was the best advice. I think it worked out really well. But the advice that I got from one of my faculty was, I was like, I really want to manage money as soon as possible. And his advice was, well, go into the brokerage business because as soon as you can convince somebody to give you some money, you'll be managing money. Hmm. And it, again, I'm not sure that was the best advice that I would give somebody today, but it was the advice that I took. And I'm really glad that I did because the fact that literally from day one, starting in the investment business on the brokerage side of the world, I was able to articulate to investors why I believed in something and why they should you know, entrust me with their capital. And from there, I was managing money. So I was actually managing separate accounts you know, at the age of 22 years old for investors at a major Wall Street firm because of the fact that I was able to convince people to do that and I had the flexibility to do it. So for the first decade of my career, I was very focused on where I was going to be able to manage money, get the largest amount of capital uh, under my advisement, but then ultimately set myself up to go into start my own firm at 31 years old because when I was 21, I set a very specific goal to start my firm 10 years later. And I started the firm nine years and nine months later, uh, which was not an accident, obviously. But so I was managing money the whole time. And so it was already a plan from 21 that I was going to start, you know, CAS Investments and I already knew the name of it at, uh, at, at the age of 31. And so every step along the way was to guide me and direct me to the tools that I needed, the people I needed to know, the skills that I needed to have the capital that I needed to have under management to be able to take that step and then was able to get some very significant families to back me in that effort um, at the age of 31. That's fascinating. Okay. So had this idea, age 21, a 10 year goal. How, that's okay. This is really cool. How do you, um, 
how do you kind of keep yourself to hold yourself to account? How do you make sure you're on track to meet that goal? How do you, you know, keep yourself from letting it just continue to be a goal out there? And I, th- I imagine there are a lot of folks who are like, you know, one day, one day, one day, you had a very specific timeline and plan. How do you, how do you do that? So uh, it's, it's a very well-known uh, fact that Tony Robbins is, is one of our partners and Tony Robbins became a partner only about two years ago, but he has been, other than my wife and my faith, he's been the biggest impact on my life by far because at 21 years old is when I first started listening to his listening to his teachings and reading reading his material. And literally, it was in a goal-setting workshop that Tony does a, a talk through about what do you want to do and when, and I set that goal. And so every step along the way was to get to that ultimate outcome, which was to have my own firm, Kaz Investments, at that time. So the root of your question is, what is the discipline that it takes in order to be able to accomplish that? And the answer is, it must be a big enough why. You know, it's a corny statement, but it's very true. The bigger the why, the more we try. And, you know, we have all heard stories of, you know, very small females whose child's under a car and they're able to literally lift the car because their why is so big that they're able to do something that they shouldn't be able to do. So obviously that's an extreme example, but in everyone's life, no matter it's relationships, whether it's work, whether it's finances, no matter what it is, hobbies even, if we have a big enough why, we will find a way to get there. And so every step of that path along that 10-year journey was, this is something I'm really committed to. This is what it's going to feel like. This is what it's going to look like. And this is why I want to accomplish it. And so therefore, I had the energy to do the things I didn't feel like doing because the why was so big. Because all of us need the energy, whether it's you know studying in school, you know none of us really want to study that much necessarily. Some do, but if we really want to make good grades, we better do it. And so, if that is important enough to us, we'll make the sacrifices and do the things that other people will not do in order to be able to get what other people do not have, whatever that may be: service, finance, success, mm-hmm. career, etc. So the why was so big for me that I knew I wanted to do it. And so therefore it was actually pretty easy. The only other thing I'll add to that is that most people just get off track and because they don't have a clear target, they are just, they kind of waffle or they drift. You know, I use this story all the time. If I'm going to get in my car in Houston, Texas, and I'm going to drive to Lubbock, I pretty much know the path to get there. But if all of a sudden there's a road closed because of construction or whatever, if I know exactly what my detours are going to do, you know, that's great. But most of the time we don't know that we have to just figure it out as we go in the days, days before GPS, especially. So if I know that my target is Lubbock though, I'm going to find a way to get to Lubbock. Most people never have a specific outcome that they're committed to with a big enough why to get them there. And then the last piece on that would be the discipline to have a very set routine whether it be a morning routine, a weekly routine, a monthly routine, quarterly routine, annual routine, that they're going to stick to, that they know is going to get them that result that they're committed to. And they're really, really focused on and they have a big enough why. I really like that. That The why, the big enough why. I guess that's kind of like I my why for starting this channel was I felt like there's a gap in the more traditional mainstream financial media. Of, you would have these amazing guests that would come on air and they'd only get like seven minutes. And I always felt like, wow, I want to hear more of what that person has to say, not the host. And I'm, I usually don't even do this. I shouldn't do this. I usually let my guests talk all the time, but that's why I wanted to do this. And I'm so excited to have you on because I'm already really enjoying this conversation. I know the viewers will too. So on the part of the why, I don't know, maybe you answered it. What was the big why for you? It's, it's interesting because of the fact that that why today looked small in comparison to what ultimately you know has occurred but it was a very important why to me at the time and that was that you know i grew up in a situation where i didn't have a very good father figure he, he was not in my life at all at that point in time and i was motivated very heavily by i was not going to become like him and i was going to prove to the world that i could do this just as well as all those people i read about in the books that I read when I was in college and continued to read through the early parts of my career and still do today. Being a voracious reader is such an important skill for everyone 
but it's important to broaden our knowledge from other people that have gone before us. You know, as the saying goes, it's much less expensive to learn from other people's mistakes than our own. Well, I did that. And so every single step along the way, I wanted to go back and go, you know what? I want to be just as good as one of those people in those in, in the books that I read. And I knew I could if I worked hard enough, if I was you know, committed to it enough, if I studied enough, and if I was disciplined enough, I would be able to accomplish that. And then obviously there was otherwise as well, the ability to have my own business, to be able to grow. And, you know, I mean, most people at some point would like to be entrepreneurial in some fashion. So those were, those were wise. But if we really were very transparent and honest with each other, I will tell you that mine was, I did not want to become my father. I wanted to be so much more. And I knew I was capable of that. And ultimately, as a person of faith, to be able to go out and, you know, serve the world the way that I felt I was called to do so, that ultimately was a very big why. And I felt I could do that better with my own firm than necessarily I could have before. Again, I love that this conversation just like full of so many different le lessons and principles. I'm really enjoying it. Okay. So your firm, Kaz Investments. I think it has more than like three billion in assets under management. Can you kind of explain um, the setup, uh, the structure of your firm, the areas that you all focus on? I'd love to hear more about it. So we're a little closer to five billion. We've oh been, wow! Okay, my you know, apologies. No, that's okay. We've five grown billion. very, okay. very quickly. Uh, we have we have really accelerated our growth because we do have a very unique offering investment advisors and their clients and then for family offices institutions etc you know people try to put CAS into a bucket that's normal but it actually really doesn't fit us that well the you know we're not the traditional wealth manager we don't do wealth management we're not the typical family office or multifamily office but we kind of have some similarities there and we are an investment advisor but we're not just like a large cap long only manager we are closest probably to the merchant banks of the early 1900s. We are first, second, and third focused on where are we going to put our personal capital. So our shareholders, our family, the, 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 the team, um, we collectively have over $600 million of our own money invested in our own vehicles. And we're always the largest investor in everything we do. So we're going to make the investments that we make, whether anyone else comes alongside of us or not. But when we do make an investment, we do open it up to our network. And our network now is over 2,500 different investors in 49 states and 13 countries. And it's because we can get them access to things that they usually would not be able to get to on their own, or we're able to get it for them in a better economic or structuring package than they could do on their own. Or if neither of the first two are in place, we will show our alignment by not even charging management fees. We'll just take a percentage of the profits. So, and the old saying goes, if we're the largest investor and we don't get paid unless somebody makes money, it doesn't mean it's gonna work, but it means we are aligned. And we are all focused on rowing the boat in the same direction and we believe it's going to work, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. So we are this very unusual animal to where we have a lot of investment advisors around the world that utilize us for their clients because we provide them with something very differentiated. And one of the reasons why we're differentiated is because of the fact that we're very thematic. So we find a theme, we're going to find the best risk reward way to take advantage of that theme, and then we're going to find the right team to partner with if we don't have the skill set internally in order to accomplish that theme. It's the easiest one to, to use as an example. We believed in 2006, 2007, that the subprime bubble was gonna burst and there was going to be a very significant sell-off in housing and the markets in general. We already had an existing relationship with John Paulson. John told us what he was doing in the mortgage world and we invested specifically alongside John in the short subprime trade. So we found what we believe was the best risk reward, the way that John was executing the strategy. We felt they were the right team to partner with. We provided our investors with access to something they would never, ever get on their own if they even had heard about it on their own. And then obviously we all were, were very successful as a result. So we are very thematic. And when we identify those themes, we're going to create 
a vehicle that allows the investors to invest in it and benefit from our scale and our structure. So, you know, we're one of the top 250 private equity allocators in the world. And so we, you know, it's not like other firms that have a lot more money with us. I use, you know, Texas Teachers as a great example. They have a tremendous amount of capital, but not all of it is alternatives. Everything we do of the $5 billion, roughly, that we have is alternatives. That's it. So we, as a result, write very, very large checks. Last year, as an example, we wrote a million-dollar check in a very small startup-type business, and we wrote a billion-dollar check. There are very few firms or allocators on the planet that can do both. Okay, there's a lot of great content here. I want to just dig in a little bit. Um, okay, John Paulson, very successful betting against subprime, um, and you mentioned that was um, one of the themes that came up for you all. And um, maybe let's kind of go back in time a bit because I want to hear about that. Like, what were you sensing then? Um, what were you seeing um, in the market that made you bearish on subprime? And did you invest in the, his hedge fund or um, was it the mortgage-backed securities that he was short? I'm not sure the exact specifics, but what I would love to just kind of go back and hear more about that time in your career. It's a fun theme to talk about because of the fact that it is colorful. And because they made the movie The Big Short, people can kind of understand the psychology now. But at the time, it was very, very contrarian. But the real event was I had this feeling over and over and over that this was just building to be one of the classic bubbles and having, you know, obviously lived through the 1999 tech bubble and other you know, bubbles of history that I had studied. I recognized what bubbles looked like because I was able to separate the emotion from the equation and to focus on really true what are the values here. And there was two main events that I was able to you know, say, I have to find a way to take advantage of this. One of which was with a hedge fund, a different hedge fund manager, who was also very bearish on the space and provided me with copies of mortgage applications, obviously names redacted for privacy. But those mortgage applications, and they literally showed people that were working at McDonald's, not in the executive suite, but actually working in the stores of McDonald's that were acquiring millions of dollars worth of real estate. And they were putting $500,000 of income and they listed all their assets and all these homes. And they were levered to the hilt because nobody cared about whether or not they actually were qualified to be able to get that mortgage. They literally didn't make $500,000. They probably made less than 50, but they didn't have any income verification requirements back then. There was no credit check. So it was so easy to get capital. It's just like in the movie, you have these people that literally do all kinds of professions that were making a lot of money by buying real estate. And I saw that day in and day out, but that was a very important event. A couple of weeks later, I remember very clearly I was in Los Angeles airport and back in the day when they would have TV, you know, showing and they would have advertisements showing while you're waiting in the lobby uh, to get on the airplane and a Ditech commercial comes on. Ditech funding was the name of it for those that aren't familiar with them. And literally their commercial was, you don't have to tell us how much you earn. We don't check your credit and you don't have to put any money down at all on your existing home we'll give you 120% mortgage or a new home will give you a 120% mortgage with no money down and no credit check. And I literally not shouted at the TV, but said to the TV, that is nuts. And of course, everybody in the other in the waiting area thought I was nuts because I'm talking to the TV, but it literally was, it, this is absolutely insane. And the same way that I felt in 1999 and early 2000, when people said that, you know, it doesn't matter if they ever generate revenue or profit, it's different this time. And I heard so many people say it's different this time in early 2000, late 2006. So at that point, I knew we had to find a way to take advantage of it. And so John created a fund. We partnered obviously in his fund and we participated alongside him in that big short um, that ultimately, you know, um, for, for John, the book, The Greatest Trade Ever was written about. And yeah. what people don't give John enough credit for, and he should get more credit for this, the risk on the downside was so minimal. We literally did not have an outsized amount of risk in order to make these enormous gains that we made because of the way that the deal was, the, the fund was structured 
and because of the way that he was able to use the CDS market to take advantage of that opportunity. This is so interesting. Okay. You also mentioned 99, 2000, um, you know, this time's different. The people always say this time's different. It's never different. And then obviously the housing crisis. Um, let's fast forward to today and this macro environment, the economy. How do you think about or assess the macro economy and also the markets as well? What is kind of your big picture view today? It's interesting from the perspective of dislocations, because we just finished talking about some major bubbles. Well, obviously in 2021, we had a major bubble then as well. And it is also a what I think is a very informative story for the audience because of the fact that literally I was in Tampa, Florida, and I was having lunch with someone there. And the bus boy was a few minutes late. And the waiter who was waiting on us kind of looked and said, you know, hey, why are you late? And he goes, I just finished making all this money on this meme stock that I've been trading. I won't say the name of the company, but I literally just made all this money on this. So sorry, I'm late, but I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you a portion of the profits later or something like that. And I literally just went back to the age old adage, which is when the barber or the cab driver is telling you about how much money you're making in stocks, you need to get out. And we were at that place in 2021. And sure enough, of course, all the meme stocks and the cryptocurrencies, they had their you know, their, their bubble burst and they had the painful 2022 that they had. Well, the relevance to your question is when you have those kinds of events where you have that much excess created, rarely, and it does happen sometimes, but rarely does it rectify itself very quickly. Usually it takes a while. 1999, we didn't really bottom until 2002. In the case of the GFC, yes, we bottomed in March of 2009, but that was, we started the problems back in the spring of 2007. So it is something to where normally it takes longer than people think to reconcile where those dislocations have occurred. So the key is, is to identify where the buying opportunities are today. So we had this massive flood of liquidity that obviously created the speculative bubble that has now burst and the Fed has raised rates faster than they ever have in history. But we haven't seen true dislocation. We're starting to see it in places like secondaries, in places like energy, in places, which is kind of different for that reason, but in the cases of real estate, venture, we obviously have seen dislocation. So there's a lot more opportunities today in those spaces than we have seen since really 2009, 2010. So our view is that this recession is coming. It's going to be deeper probably and longer than people think. And the reason for that is that there's two types of slowdowns. Those that are episodic, they happen because of an episode. COVID's an obvious example. That COVID happens, it shuts the economy down, we have a recession. The other we haven't seen in 40 years, and that is a manufactured recession. That is where inflation is running so hot that the Federal Reserve has to raise rates so fast to slow down the inflation, to literally make it be a situation to where we go into the recession to basically beat inflation. The thing that is different about it from an episodic recession is the playbook for the Fed is very different. Clearly, Federal Reserve, their job, if you have price instability and you have a massive recession, their job is to flood the market with liquidity. They've done it every single time it's happened since 1982. Why is this time different? Because they have a different problem now than they've had in the last 40 years, and that is inflation. The Fed right now, the markets believe are going to start cutting rates by the end of the year. Anything can happen, but I will be shocked if the Federal Reserve finishes next week or the week after, um, you know, or the next quarter, I should say, and then all of a sudden turns around and starts cutting rates. Don't expect that to happen. We believe the Fed is going to have to make sure that the effect of the risen of the, the higher rates is going to have the desired effect and slowed inflation down and really get it under control. Well, when that occurs, you also have ripple effects. And naturally, Silicon Valley Bank is exhibit A. 
Well, the stress in the banking markets because of the rising rates will help do the Fed's job for them a little bit. But absent a complete and total major catastrophe in the recession, you know, type of recession, the Fed is not going to come bail us out. The Fed also has to shrink the balance sheet. Already has started to do that in a pretty meaningful way. Money supply has rolled over quite dramatically. All of that leads us to believe that this recession is not going to be a short-lived recession like 2020. It's going to be much more of the two- or three-year variety that we had in the GFC or after the tech bubble of 1999, which is why for us, it's all about finding dislocated assets or persistent assets that are going to do well, even if that hypothesis is found to be true. Yeah. Again, more great, great things to dig into. I, a quick follow on, um, and I'm taking so many notes because you're just helping all of us learn. Um, and that's why I'm so grateful for you and your time. It seems like there's a disconnect, as you kind of point out, between like the markets, like markets expecting rate cuts and kind of like what the Fed's kind of signaling is higher for longer. Um, I think many, many expect uh, even next week at the Fed meeting, another another hike. Why, why do you think there is a disconnect? And what does that kind of signal to you that there is one? It is a shockingly logical explanation that not many people I think are talking about as much as they should. I've been in the business, as you said, 33 years. That's a long time. I was not in the business in 1982. I wasn't even in college yet. So I don't remember the pain of rising rates and very high inflation the way the people that lived through it did. Going home every night and going, oh my gosh, am I going to have a job? Am I going to be able to make money? How's this going to work? That I certainly did not live that virtually no one else in the investment business that is actively managing portfolios today was in the business in 1982 other than people that are in their late 60s or maybe even in their 70s. And there are certainly some. But when you look at the vast majority, there are folks that literally either A, never studied that period, or B, just don't appreciate the emotion that those kinds of periods create. And so they're making the same mistakes. You know, Winston Churchill, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it, paraphrased. Well, I think there's a lot of people that are expecting the Federal Reserve to turn on a dime and start lowering rates. People I respect, people that are brilliant, but they just don't fully appreciate that the, the playbook for the Fed just has to be a different one because of what inflation is doing in our economy today. Mm -hmm. They have to use that different playbook, which means there's a different set of rules. If there's a different set of rules, there's a different strategy that has to be employed. If there's a different strategy that has to be employed, somebody has to be able to know what that is. And if it doesn't fit their specific skill set, they often rationalize their position that, oh, what I know how to do will work again. I just need to be patient or they start to exact that emotional position on the markets, which is usually a very bad idea, and why we get, ultimately, people who have to throw in the towel. And for folks like me, we really like it when people go from, it's different this time, to it's different this time. Just get me out. I don't care about the price. I like to be a buyer then. And I definitely like to take the approach of, you know, be, be greedy when others are fearful to quote Mr. Buffett again, that is to me where we are likely to be in certain asset classes over the next two to three years. Yeah. Let me ask one follow-on before we get into like the asset classes and the opportunities. Okay. Is part of your thesis, because I'm hearing inflation, inflation's um, still running. Um, we still have inflation. We have an inflation problem. And with this, uh, with, with a recession coming, it could be deeper and longer than folks expect. Is that scenario for you? Is that the stagflation scenario? And if you have the thesis for stagflation, can you walk us through what that means for stocks, for bonds? Like what are kind of the, the bigger implications if that's the case, if we get into a stagflationary environment? You took the words right out of my mouth. It is all about stagflation. It fits the textbook 100% example of what stagflation is, which means 
a stagflationary environment is the worst possible economic regime that has ever existed for financial assets, for stocks and bonds, going back all the way since they started using that term, which was 1972. So for the last 50 years, it's been the worst. It's the only economic regime that actually has a negative re return on average over a 50-year period of time. So stagflation is terrible for bonds. It's terrible for stocks. Stocks, easier to explain. Actually, bonds are pretty easy as well. For bonds, it's really simple. Rates stay higher. You don't have the cutting of rates that you would normally have in a Fed rescue situation. And so you don't make the returns on that. And also, it tends to mean that rates are going to continue to climb until inflation is going to be taken under control, which means you're going to have some devaluation of your bonds as rates continue to creep higher. On stocks, it's almost all about profit margins. So far, companies have been able to pass through higher prices, low unemployment. Obviously, that's, a, that's an advantage for companies right now is if the consumer is able to pay more and is willing to do so, then your margins are a little bit safer. But if your margins become under pressure because of the fact that your consumer of whatever good or service you sell is not willing to accept that extra increase in price, then your margins are going to come down and your earnings growth is going to come down. Your balance sheet is going to get less healthy because A, you're just not generating as much cash or B, because of the fact that you have debt and rates are higher all of which lead to lower valuations for stock prices. And you know anybody who really believes that we're going to see 20 times earnings for companies that have half the margin levels or three quarters of the margin levels that they used to have and three quarters of the growth rates that they used to have, they haven't studied history. And that doesn't mean it cannot be different this time. But we don't expect that to be the case. The market is a rational animal. Eventually, it can be irrational for extended periods of time, but eventually it will be rational and investors will look at it and say, you know, if they can get six or 7% on a high grade corporate and inflation's four or five or five and a half, they may be willing to accept that and sell their stocks. And that takes valuations to 14 times or 12 times or Last time we really saw stagflation, you had a lot of companies trading at 8 to 12 times earnings, which would be a massive decrease from current levels for this market. So historically, that is the worst possible environment, as you point out, for stocks and bonds. But what I'm also hearing from you, and you mentioned the Buffett maxim, be greedy uh, when others are fearful that you're someone who's looking for opportunity in these kinds of environments. You obviously did quite well during the subprime uh, housing meltdown, spotting that opportunity. So my question for you is on, I guess it's two-pronged. You mentioned like opportunities within dislocations. Is that opportunities to get in when there's sell-offs for things to go up, opportunities for shorts? And then another, I guess the kind of bucket I heard was finding places to be that kind of are, can persist in these more turbulent economic environments? Certainly. The, the answer is both, but right now it's hard to do a lot on the short side. Absent just shorting the market right now, which is something we are fairly short right this second, absent that, there's not a lot of great opportunities after a decline like we've seen in some of these asset classes. Don't get me wrong, it would have been a great idea to short Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, when the stock was five bucks before it went to zero. But we didn't do that because we felt like the risk reward was something we just weren't comfortable with because it could have gone back to 20 again, like it did during the meme heyday. So there are those opportunities. That's not really our strategy. That's not what we really try to do. What we're more focused on is where you'll see a big major dislocation, interest rates going negative, as an example, or 10-year treasury hit 53 basis points, or crude oil goes down dramatically in price, or you see secondary pieces come in, in the private equity world at 70 cents on the dollar. We're going to look for those opportunities. Venture lending is an area that we're very excited about right now. Distressed credit. There's a lot of distressed credit. Bankruptcies are beginning to really accelerate. Obviously, Bed Bath & Beyond being one of them. There's a lot of opportunity 
that didn't exist really in the last six to 10 years. Now we're wanting to, you know, we're in a position to take advantage of those uh, as they occur, but we are picking our spots. And obviously real estate is going to be a huge opportunity, but it's still a little bit early. So on that side, we do want to make money from, you know, shorting things if it makes sense. But right now it's harder. We are very much um, focused on where we can buy things for 70 cents on the dollar. It's really hard to lose money if you buy it at truly a dollar's worth of assets. You have to agree what a dollar's worth. But it's really hard to lose money if you pay 70 cents for something that's worth a dollar. Doesn't mean you can't, but it's hard to. Right. On the other side... While we wait for those dislocations to occur, we prefer to operate in themes, take advantage of themes that are very significant tailwinds, things that every single person will agree with. And I'll give you an example. I actually was at an event. I was speaking to a crowd of about 700 people. And I literally said, I will challenge anyone to stand up and debate me on a topic and I will pay you $1,000 even if you lose the debate, if you just had the courage to take the other side with a straight face and legitimately make your argument because you believe this, I'll pay you $1,000. And I said what the theme was, and I'll tell you in a second, and no one in the audience stood up to take the $1,000 because it's irrefutable. The question was this, how many people believe that cord cutting is going to stop and go back the other direction and people are gonna go back to broadcast and cable. Well, obviously nobody can make that argument with a straight face. So if you know that theme is real and it's going to persist throughout time, let's go make some money from it. And that is why we have been so involved in professional sports. And the reason for that is because of the fact that literally if you own the audience, those eyeballs, you're going to be able to get paid very well for delivering advertisers to their audience that they want to talk to. So you think about the 29 to 45 year old demographic, they have overwhelmingly cut their cords. If you do not have the ability to reach them with a live event, they will never watch your commercial. So if you look at what's happened over time, now 92 of the top 100 live events it's no longer Friends or Seinfeld or other you know, great TV shows. It is sports. So if you want to reach your audience, you don't have a choice if you're an advertiser. You must advertise on a sports activity of some kind. Well, it's very difficult. To, you can't own a piece of you know, a college football team or a high school basketball team, but you can own a portion of a professional sports team. And so that is why we've been so focused on that, because we see this big tailwind of obviously this real opportunity for the consumer to get what they want in great content from the, um, from the, the, uh, the sporting events, but also obviously be in a position to um, help the advertisers reach their audience. Those two things combined are a big reason why we're involved in professional sports. That is so true. I'm kind of smiling because I'm thinking that's the only reason that I guess we, I don't know if you call it cable. I don't even know. I don't watch it, but my husband watches all the sporting events and he's watching the Rangers game tonight. And I know whatever it is he's paying for so you can watch it live. So yeah. Um, okay. On the sporting side, which teams do you have a stake in? <laughs> so we can't go into the specifics okay. of which teams we own. What I, what I can say is that we have several partners and we are, you know, owners, partial owners in over 25 different North American sport, uh, sporting teams um, across the NBA, Major League Baseball, hockey, and Major League Soccer, as well as some European football teams uh, as well. Very cool. All right. Um, going back, though, maybe it's the prior answer when you're kind of outlining some opportunities and you said it was too early, but you mentioned real estate. And I think a lot of people have questions about real estate today. I don't know if it's housing or if it's commercial real estate, but if you don't mind, could, could you share some of your thoughts on the real estate market and maybe you can pick where you want to go within that? What are you thinking about today? So everything is local when it comes to real estate. So we have to start with that understanding. All real estate is local. It's kind of like all politics is local. Mm -hmm. Well, real estate, you know, what's happening 
in North Carolina is different than what's happening in Texas versus Florida versus New York, et cetera. But with a broad brush, the themes that are existing that exist in real estate today is that without question, interest rates are higher. Therefore, cap rates are higher. If cap rates are higher, prices must be lower. That is just the math because everything is competing and comparing with the risk-free rate. So if the risk-free rate goes up, well, then obviously the price has to come down. So that is happening across the board. Number two, everyone is aware, generally speaking, that there is this massive debt wall that is looming. And these maturities that are going to happen between 2024 and 2027 are enormous. And not only enormous in absolute dollar terms, but enormous because there's such a huge portion of the market that is going to have to refinance in the next four years. Well, if that is the case, rates are higher. The economics of a building, an apartment, a warehouse, or a single family home, they all ultimately are going to be stressed because of the higher interest rate when the refinance must occur. Obviously, if they're in floating rate debt, that's kind of gone ongoing, but so much of this debt is fixed rate debt. Well, unless things change very dramatically and rates just plummet from here, which we don't think is going to happen, people are going to be forced to refinance with much higher costs for their debt which means their building is going to be worth a lot less and loan to value ratios are going to be lower because people are going to be more conservative. I'm already seeing that. I'll come back to that. What that ultimately means is that there's going to have to be a lot of equity infusion into those buildings, those properties, those assets. Usually that's very bad for the owner and it means they're either going to be diluted or they're going to have to give the keys back and walk away. All of that means you're going to have supply come to the market. One of the things that's interesting about 2022 and 23 so far in real estate is you've not actually had any kind of real panic selling in the marketplace because people are waiting as long as they can. If you don't have to sell your building at a bad price and you have another two years, you know, might as well wait because maybe it'll get better. But if you They're hoping take it will the, get better. Yeah. Hope is not a good investment strategy, no. but it's one that yeah. is absolutely taken inside of the world of real estate in particular right now. So that's the one part of it. The second part of it is the largest lenders to commercial real estate as a percentage of the total is local regional mm -hmm. banks. They're really under a lot of stress right now. And that means they're not as likely to lend at all. And if they do lend, it's likely at a lower loan to value and it potentially is at a higher interest rate as well. So all of those factors lead us to say every sector of real estate is going to be stressed. Some will have more stress than others. Office is an obvious one. But we think there's a lot of complacency in multifamily right now that could bite some people in the tail because of the fact that, yes, rent rates are okay and occupancy is pretty good as long as there's enough employment to keep those people you know, in those facilities, that's good. And we do think that is to be true. But what we're concerned about and where we think people are too complacent is the amount of supply that has to come on the market between 24 and 27, because so much of the new delivery of apartments has been in areas that have been growing very fast. And it was done with fixed rate debt in 19, 20, 21, 22. And it's going to mature or it's going to reset. It's going to have to be refinanced in 24 to 27, 28. But there's a lot more supply that's going to come to market and there's not going to be as much demand. That is with the recipe of a dislocation when supply is artificially high and demand is low, you're going to get a correction in price. Mm -hmm. And maybe there could be opportunity. Absolutely. Okay. I want to ask a very selfish question. I want to buy a house by, I want to buy a house in the spring of 2024. Is that a terrible idea? No, I think buying a house is almost always a great idea for someone for their own personal residence. It's, it's a wonderful place to store capital. It's candidly a very forced savings. You know, if somebody takes a mortgage, it, it is something that it has a lot of benefits over time. It also is something that they can have direct control of that ultimately can make them a very good return. 
So I'm a huge believer in personal home ownership. At the same time, I think it should be done intelligently, which means not chasing the hottest, you know, market and being, you know, in a bidding war where you pay 30% above what something is worth. Mm -hmm. Be patient. And the good news is now people don't really have to be patient like they were a year and a half ago. But today there's a lot of things that usually are fairly priced. And as long as it's a home that somebody wants to be in for a couple of years, buy that house, treat it with care, look at it as you know a really good asset to own, use a reasonable level of leverage if you need to use leverage at all, and then ultimately enjoy it because there's not a lot of assets that we get to make investments that we get to make that we actually get to enjoy. So I'm a big, big believer in personal home ownership, as long as it's not done with way more than somebody can afford or just simply chasing the top of the market and paying silly money for an asset. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And that makes me feel a lot better. Okay. We have not brought this up. There's so I can, I'm learning so much. I want to have you back on in the future because you are awesome and more people need to know about you, but I didn't ask you about the U.S. dollar. There's been so much talk lately in recent weeks, especially there's been a lot of talk around de-dollarization, a lot of movement in the dollar. What is your big picture outlook take on the U.S. dollar? I think the the dollar as being you know no longer the reserve currency. Could that happen eventually? Yes, anything is possible, and it's theoretically real. So we have to factor it in as a possibility. But it's not changing any investment decisions that we make today because things like that usually happen much slower than people would expect unless there's some kind of a you know catastrophic event, which in all times in you know in recent history, like the last couple hundred years, that means it becomes the safe haven. And that is ultimately where people want to park their capital is in the US dollar. So I do think that there's pressure on the dollar. We know that between China and Russia and others, they are looking to not have to be beholden to the dollar as an exchange because they believe it, it provides the U.S. government with some level of control over the decisions that they make. We know that to be true. But if our friends start to embrace China, Russia, and the other currencies that would be out there instead of the U.S., then I'm going to become more concerned. And if they do it in a small way and maybe in a token way, I will become you know, very little concerned. But if they do it in a serious magnitude, like they sell all of their U.S. treasuries and they just say, look, we're no longer doing business in the U.S. dollar. We're now strictly euro or we're now strictly in another currency that's out there. Then that would be concerning because we have to finance our debt. And if we cannot finance our debt because people don't want to own dollars, it's just really going to be a bad situation. But with all of that said, I'm a big believer in the United States. I'm a big believer in that we are the most powerful free economy in the world. And so therefore, we're going to have the position in the world that we need to have for people to feel safe that the U.S. government is going to be around and that ultimately their dollars are going to maintain their, their value. So I don't buy too much into the sky is falling, you know, statement in the short run, but we are watching it very carefully from a long run perspective, just because it's our job to be aware of what could potentially impair the value of our capital or provide opportunity for us to be able to take advantage of another big trend, et cetera. Yeah. I didn't ask you this either, but just um, trying to squeeze in one more. How about... Um the debt situation here in the U.S., um, perhaps a looming debt ceiling uh, fight. How do you kind of think about our own financial position here in the U.S.? I absolutely am terrified of our debt levels in this country. I'm terrified of the way that we don't have, you know, deficit, that we don't have discipline in our fiscal spending. I am absolutely um, frustrated that people on both sides of the aisle don't recognize that it's something that we just have to deal with. And nobody wants to talk about entitlements. Nobody wants to talk about, you know, having to change things. But that is what it takes in order to make good decisions and do what is best, not just for the next two years of the election cycle, but to ultimately do really, really well for, you know, my family, for your family, for my grandchild, 
you know, I, I want them to have the United States that I got to have the opportunity I have had to be somebody who can go to school and to ultimately, you know, pay my way through school and then come on and work hard and, and, and try to be successful. I want them to have that. That doesn't occur if all of a sudden the fiscal situation is so bad that we end up with a complete reset of our economy that could happen because of an out of control debt situation. That said, it's the same thing. It's not tomorrow. And I'm not really concerned about what's going on in Washington right now. They'll come to an agreement and they'll they'll kick the can down the road. They they do that well. And it's the right thing to do, candidly. But at the same time, it's something that over the next decade, we have to solve for. We must have discipline in our spending and we must do something about our debt. Otherwise, what the only thing that will happen is we will have hyperinflation because that's the only way to retire that debt in any way possible other than just you know, draconian tax regime, which would, of course, destroy the economy. So it's a real concern of mine. It's why we like assets, like owning GP stakes and private equity, private credit firms and things that, you know, candidly, they we don't have to deal with a lot of that noise because they're persistent throughout the cycle. And we can talk about that on another time or we can talk about it here today, whatever works for you. Really, really enjoyed having you on, uh, Christopher Zook. Uh, I want to hand it back to you. And if you want to let folks know where maybe they can read any of um, sure. the investor letters that you put out or where they can learn more about you, your firm, any of the work that you do too. Like I, I know you do a lot of work in the community as well. Just take the next few minutes to share. And also if you have any parting uh, thoughts for the folks at home watching and listening. Sure. So the the answer to the question, I'll go in reverse order. I do think that probably the greatest trend and theme that we are invested in that will last and persist for a very long time is the growth of private assets. The growth of the private asset management business, we want to own that. And so we have become one of the largest owners of private asset management firms in the world. And it's because of that growth from institutional investors and families together that we're able to invest in something. And as the saying goes, it's better to be on the house side of the table as opposed to the player if you're playing a card game. It's true also, it's better to be on the GP side of the equation than it is on the limited partner side of the equation because we're the ones who get to be able to, as the owner, they get to own the fees, the management fees, the carried interest, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that's something to wear to the other part of your question. People can go to casinvestments.com and you can not only learn about what we're doing in a lot of the themes that we have talked about today, but particularly for private equity as an asset class, you can read about it there. Um, we also are very open about our views. Every single quarterly letter that we have written for the last 23 years is on our website. So people can go back and read all of the history and see the buying opportunity of our generation in 2002, the buying opportunity of our generation in 2009, part two, the way that we you know, were concerned about subprime and all the other major dislocations and themes that we have focused on over the last 23 years. I have a pretty good presence on LinkedIn, so we'd encourage people to follow us on LinkedIn. And obviously, you know, we're really out there from the standpoint of being able to put out content that hopefully will add value to people that enable them to make better decisions from an investment perspective and ultimately to remove emotion from the equation and to focus on the opportunities from a very disciplined perspective. I have a real quick follow on um, the GP stakes. So having buying stakes in private equity, and I know you mentioned the size earlier. How do you how do you get to do that, or like how do you kind of assess like which ones you want to buy? Like, I, I just a little bit curious, and I apologize for keeping you uh, on here longer, but I I want to hear more on that. So the advantage of the GP stake model, if you actually look at the Forbes, you know, list of the wealthiest people in this country, there's a very common theme there, and mm -hmm. that is private equity managers yeah. and private credit and real estate managers are on there, because when an institution gives $100 million to a manager to manage, that manager is going to get paid, the, you know, let's just use the classic 2 and 20, the 2% management fee and 20% of the profits for the next potentially five to 10 years. So I use the very simple analogy that imagine if you decided tomorrow to start a private equity firm and you were able to raise a billion dollars. Well, if you were able to raise a billion dollars, then you're going to get $20 million in fees a year for at least five years. 
So that means you're going to make a hundred million dollars just because you raised one fund. And oh, by the way, they can't fire you. They're not allowed to get out. So they cannot take it away from you. So 20 million a year for five years, it's a hundred million dollars. And then if you're good at what you do and you take that billion and you turn it into 2 billion, well, then you're going to earn 20% of the profits. That's another $200 million of revenue for you. So now you've made $300 million. And, and you're probably you don't not have to hire anyone there. else, I suppose. Like you can grow exactly. your, oh, I see. That's very efficient. That's the thing. You can, therefore, next fund, maybe you do $2 billion fund. You're not going to need twice as many people. You might need a few more people, but you're not going to need twice as many people. So your operating margins improve dramatically. So the locked up nature, the contractually obligated management fees, and the opportunity to participate in being successful leads to not only high cash flow, but also long-term increased value, but then ultimately enterprise value if you decide to sell that business and make it a true institutional asset management firm. So we are very active in that. We have you know, a very large number, over 50 different firms that we own stakes in all over the world in all different styles. And the number one thing we look for is consistency. Mm. We look for firms that have the ability to perform well for their investors consistently across the cycle, and to also do a very good job of growing and managing their business itself. When you combine that together, and then we have the ability to add strategic value to them, it makes for a very good combination. And to be clear, we're not buying 50, 60, 70% of these firms. We're buying 10 or 20% of these firms. So they're looking at it from the standpoint of one plus one, hopefully equals a lot more than two. Yeah. Well. Christopher Zook, I've really enjoyed having you on the show. And I want to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. And I learned a lot. Really appreciate you coming on. It was my pleasure. And I'd be happy to come back anytime. All my very best. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.